Just a reminder for today's show that nothing that we say today should be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult a professional investment advice. Uh, welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode three. We've got the three amigos. Uh, we've got Richard Diaz here with Acorn, uh, a boutique, Acorn Research, a boutique macro research house that specializes in helping family offices, high net worth individuals, and small institutions with asset allocation and portfolio construction. And of course, our favorite boomer, Keith Dicker with IceCap Asset Management, has been professionally managing money for 30 years, um, a god among us all. Uh, welcome back, Jens. Hello. Nice to see you again, Steve. Keith, how you doing? Hey, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. This is great. Excited. Number three coming up here. And uh, we've had some market events over the last few days. So let's have a good yeah, talk today. Absolutely. Let's let's dive into it. I think, uh, you know, for a lot of our Canadian listeners here uh, at the forefront of everyone's mind, and I've been taking a lot of heat for it on Twitter um, that, uh, you know, the hawkish Tiff Macklem of the bank of Canada, uh, coming out yesterday, actually, um, with an update on the sort of monetary policy report, basically pushing up, um, pushing up their guidance here for rate hikes. Uh, so basically, you know, in, in Tiff's words, not my own, uh, saying that, uh, he would, we, we would begin, we, we expect to begin increasing our policy rate sometime between April and September. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Rich, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the markets now are pricing in five rate hikes from the Bank of Canada in 2022. Of course, I don't agree that they'll get anywhere close to that, but uh, is that, is that my right? Is it five? Is that what we're looking at? I think so. I think that that's right. But someone will surely correct us in the comments. It's something around there. So, yeah. So we had this like, obviously like relatively hawkish Tiff Macklin basically coming out and saying, I think that they were expecting inflation now, of course, is, is proving not to be transitory, uh, that they suspect that inflation will subside or get back to his target towards the end, the end of 2022. So we got a while to go. I think they have it averaging around three and a half percent for the most part of in 2022. Uh, Keith, I mean, any sort of reaction function, any, any comments on your side in terms of, uh, you know, really w- what's happening with the bond market um, post that move? Because I think there was sort of a, a curve flattener, so to speak. And it looks like that's kind of balanced. So I don't know if you want to touch on that and maybe explain it uh, to, to those that might not f- be familiar um, with that. Yeah, sure, sure thing. Um, so I mean, there was so many things happened with with yesterday's meeting, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll jump right into it, and uh, we'll talk about the, you know this curve flattener that you just mentioned, and you know we you know we're global, of course, we always talk about that. Canada is not an island; it doesn't whatever happens here is not in isolation. So uh, like this movement in the bond market, it's happening all over the world at, at the same time. So it's really interesting. But let, let's jump first into what they said, what they want to do and, and what likely might happen. So in our last week's show, you know, we talked about, you know, how many rate cuts will they do? I mean, we sort of say, you know, they'll probably get two in and it'll get stopped out. You know, that, that's still our expectation. Uh, so first of all, central bankers, they absolutely believe they can control inflation. They believe they can do it. Um, so as an investor, it's important for us to know what they believe. It's not important for us to say, wait, they can't control it, which, which they can, because there are so many other things. I, w- I want to add as well, quickly, Keith, to interrupt you, sorry to interrupt you, but um, that I almost, people have to understand it, that these guys are sort of the, the, the controllers of, of the currency. They have to sort of emit this strength and this faith. They have to basically portray to you that they are in control, because if they're not in control, you know, if they say, hey, listen, politicians. Guys, we aren't... say it, yeah. say it, Steve, they're politicians, they're politicians, they have to look like they're in control. And at the end of the day, you know, fiat currency is, is, is a lot of it is backed by faith and people have to have faith in, in, in governments that they can control, you know, inflation and the value of, of their purchasing power. So uh, keep that in mind, but Keith, sorry to interrupt, continue. Yeah, it's a great comment. Uh, so as, as central bankers, I mean, they know, you know, they, they push the pedal down to the middle. So in, in March of 2020, everyone went to zero by cutting interest rates to zero percent. And then they all instituted quantitative easing. And what quantitative easing is for some people, um, 
fundamentally, it's a form of money printing. Technically, it's not really. And people say, geez, like pick, pick a side here. Uh, but what it is, is the central bank will literally print money and they'll use that money to buy federal government bonds uh, that are issued to the primary banks. And then um, the, the proceeds for that will go to the bank's reserve account at the central bank. So it, it may, it, again, to make that even simpler to understand, all the debt being issued by the federal government, it's being bought by the Bank of Canada with made up money. Where the inflation guys get the story wrong, they think that money is going directly into the marketplace, but, but it isn't. It, it gets jammed at the central bank. It doesn't do anything. The money goes into the economy when you get what we call credit creation. So RBC, BMO, all those guys, they need to say, hey, we have confidence that we can take that lend against those reserves and put money out and let people buy houses and then boats and trucks and stuff like that. So that, that's what that whole thing is. That's an important caveat. So yeah. interrupt, uh, per the Bank of England, basically they've come out and acknowledged that uh, money creation, uh, the, I think it's like 98% of all like new money that is created into circulation is basically through commercial bank loans. So it's basically when RBC creates a new mortgage for you to go buy a house, they are creating money into the financial system. So about 98% of all money is created through uh, commercial banks issuing new loans. Um, so just to, yeah, anyways, Keith, continue. Yeah, it's great. So, so the real exciting thing about the Bank of Canada meeting yesterday, and uh, again, we think central bank meetings are exciting because that's, that's what we like. <laughs> Thanks, Rich, for the laugh there. <laughs> it's funny. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Finance but as we nerds. talked about before, <laughs> these guys, they know what they have to do. And, you know, they're at at zero percent rates and they're doing qe they know they have to stop so by definition the next move is to stop and by definition right now you know the, the economy it's it's you know we can talk about how it's in really good shape or not very good shape but the point is it's it's not plummeting it's not declining so uh and prices are going up inflation is up stock market is high the housing market is good like there's so many reasons for the central banks around the world not just canada say Hey, let's let's try to start creeping out of this corner that we we painted ourselves into. So uh, that's what they started to do. So I mean, the, the first step is you say, hey, you know, we're not going to do any more QE or quantitative easing policies. Um, they're not going to reverse that. Now that's a really big step to do. Instead, you know, they'll just continue to sit on all the bonds are holding and, and roll them over, and, and that's still incredibly helpful. For, for the Can you explain that mentioned. process for, for again, for the just typical listener here that might not be overly familiar? Because we, we did get a comment as well, um, uh, you know, about the show here that they were asking, okay, so the Bank of Canada is stopping QE. They're no longer doing QE, but they're going through a, quote, reinvestment phase. Do you want to explain that reinvestment yeah. phase? So let's pretend three of us here on the Bank of Canada. Steve, you are the federal government, okay? You're, you're the Minister of Finance. And uh, Rich, you are the commercial banks. Private industry. The, Thank you, Keith. Yeah, you're the bankers. So here we go. Steve, you need to borrow money because you're, you're spending way too much more money than what you're collecting in taxes. And you call up Rich and you say, Rich, I need to borrow $3 billion. And what, what do you say, Rich? I say, as long as you don't uh, regulate, um, um, deregulate the banking sector in Canada, I'll let you do whatever you want, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now you're, you're confusing our, our listeners here. So, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so Steve is going to give, he's going to borrow $3 billion from you. And then as soon as you get it in your door, you immediately turn around and you call and meet the Bank of Canada and you say, hey, Bank of Canada, we just uh, you know, uh, bought $3 billion worth of bonds from Ottawa and we'd really like for you to buy them because you're doing QE. And I say, yeah, thanks, man, sure thing. I take the bonds from you, but instead of giving Rich, instead of giving you $3 billion in cash, I put it in your bank account at the Bank of Canada. So I've been doing that now for a while. I've been doing it every month for almost two years. And, and so now I have billions and billions of dollars built up in bonds issued by Steve, which are held in your name, Rich. So what's going to happen right now, I'm going to say, uh, you know what, I'm not going to buy any more of these bonds. So Rich, if you buy any of these bonds from Steve, 
you do whatever you want with them. Meanwhile, all these bonds I have, some of them are maturing on a weekly basis or monthly basis. And when they mature, instead of me taking the cash, you know, from, from Steve, because he has to pay me out, I'm just going to reinvest that money in the bond market. So I'm no longer buying bonds with quantitative easing, but I'm not selling them either. And, and that's, that's the key here. That's the key step. So once again, with, with the central banks, guys, for everyone to realize, they paint themselves to a corner. The next step is to try to move out from the corner. So they do that by saying, hey, we're no longer going to you know, print money, as they would call it. And you know what? Next year, we might start raising rates. And that, that's where they ended yesterday. Scary. <laughs> Rich. Well- Well, I was going to say, I was just going to add a couple of things to the QE thing. It's not just, um, so just a couple of things. I mean, if if you ask the, if you, the BOE has written loads of papers on it, there's just a couple of things that I think important to know. Quantitative easing is also, there's a signaling effect. So literally by executing on these transactions, they're telling, there's like literally it's called a signaling effect. They're telling, they're, they're, they're telling people what their interest rate policy is today and what they expect it to be in the future. And then the other thing that Keith will be familiar with this is portfolio rebalancing. So as the, the, the bond prices go up and the yield per, because they're bidding up this, this asset and the yields um, necessarily goes down, um, it effectively will force um, certain investors, certain asset holders to rebalance their portfolio sort of away from these quote unquote risk-free assets into riskier um, or higher yielding portions in the yield in, in, um, in like the offering. So you might move away if the, if the bank, if the bank of Canada bonds used to offer 4% and now they only offer 1%, but you need, let's say a 4% yielding instrument, you'll move along the risk curve and you'll start to purchase, let's say investment grade bonds and, and then hope maybe, you know, eventually um, high yielding uh, corporate bonds. So that's like the portfolio of balancing element and then there's just the, the then there's just the brass tax the facts of just lowering that interest rate which is the other bit what i wanted to add rich are you able to comment as well because <clears throat> you put some really good uh charts on twitter which we'll, we'll put them up here for the show but um you've you've highlighted i think since you know 2019 how much with a percentage of basically the bank of canada has been essentially funding uh the federal deficit um and I mean, can you comment on that? Because I think as, as right now, the Bank of Canada came out and said that the, the Bank of Canada owns 46% of the entire government of Canada bond market, 46%. Uh, but you've been following that really closely. So, I mean, any, any comments on that? Yeah, sure. I can't remember exactly. So if, if you say 46, I believe you, um, you know, don't, don't skewer me for getting the exact numbers wrong. But what is important is basically from June 2019, because Canada was, you know, roughly, you know, not was running a deficit, but it wasn't crazy. And things were going relatively okay. Um, they've, they, you know, the way I've sort of looked at it is I, I calculated what was the increase in bond holdings held by the Bank of Canada? And I looked at the increase in debt issuance, the net debt issuance from the government of Canada. And for a long time, it was basically one for one. Um, and that goes beyond what I would consider QE and, and shifts into what I would consider MMT, modern monetary theory. But basically the chart looks like, you know, it's a Canadian chart. It looks like exactly like a hockey stick. It's flat and then it just kicks up and the two lines move up together and what we'll show. And it's not perfect, of course, because it can't be perfect. These things are never exactly, they don't work that well. But basically for the last almost, you know, 18, 24 months or so, the Bank of Canada has purchased about 80% of every dollar issued. And, and you know, you know, Steve's, he's too polite. I mean, I think that that's absolutely crazy. Um, just to give you sort of a reference point, the, U, uh, the U.S. government purchased about 55 or whatever, 56, depending on the day, of course, percent of all the debt issued. And so, you know, basically you're in a situation where, the bank, and then why that's important is it because it obfuscates the reality of the, the decisions that the government of Canada should have on its own bond market. And only, only governments that, you know, have quote unquote hard currencies or have, you know, institutional kind of, um, you know, respect or, or like, 
you know, um, you know, bureaucracies that are, are held well regarded can basically get away with that kind of bullshit. Because if, if you know, if Venezuela did that or Uzbekistan or some country, you know, that, you know, many of us may maybe never heard of, you know, you, you just can't get away with that kind of that kind of stuff. But in Canada, you know, you know, everybody's like, oh, we could trust the Canadians not to screw their currency up. And I mean, and that's why, you know, interest rates have been able been able to be pinned down. I think just to, to relate it to something that's going on in the world, I mean, if you look at the Aussie, um, what's happening in the in Bank, of, uh, Bank of Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia, I think that they said, you know, we're not going to buy any more, um, we're not going to buy any more bonds, years. basically, which is not quite true. But anyways, and you could see what happened to, you could see what happened to that yield that spiked, you know, and, and so that's the reality. You cannot run deficits of 10, 12% year after year with no growth and have your interest rates um, be pinned to the floor. And it, because there, effectively, you, it, it's an admission that there's a buyer strike. It's admission that your policy, your government policy, this is my, maybe I'm editorializing here and Keith might have a different view, but it's an it admission that you know, your, your, your decisions, right or wrong, from a COVID standpoint, sorry to bring the C word, um, are just n- not respected and, and, and people, market will not tolerate that kind of basically money printing to and um, um, yeah to just basically give people cash handouts and this is where you know the qe switches to mmt you know in the past you know you had central banks buy government uh, government bonds in order to make, to hold interest rates down and to you know to to increase the excess reserves of of of, of bank of the banking sector that money you know was spent either to shore up you know to, to let's say in, in tarp for a tarp for example is tarp you know in the us in 2008 2009, uh, George Bush, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Barack Obama, I think it was George Bush, he basically signed the TARP. And it was a targeted asset relief program. And they went and bought a bunch of stocks of, let's say, the auto sector and whatever. That turned out to be a profitable decision for the US government. The difference between now is they basically just, they, they ran a huge deficit, issued loads and loads of bonds, the Bank of Canada came over the top, purchased 80% of those bonds to keep interest rates low. So basically, you're lying. If, whenever you mess with a price, and Keith, you'll like this, is like you're, you're not reflecting the true appetite or um, how people genuinely feel about that asset. And remember, yields are effectively the inverse of a price. And so you're just keeping that price down. And so what they did was they basically handed out that money to Canadian citizens. I mean, not me. I didn't, I wasn't living here at the time. I would have loved the check. I would have loved 14,000 bucks, but, and you could say, well, Rich, you know, we had to keep, you know, you had to keep the economy going. Okay. That's maybe true. Maybe not true. Loads of, you know, similar countries with similar wealth had much, much lower. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily clear that that was the right thing to do, but it was done. And it was basically financed almost entirely by the, the bank of Canada. And that's where I think it moves from something like a quanti- strictly quantitative easing, which is defined by the Bank of England, and you can read loads and loads of nice papers about that, to something sort of like a mon- modern monetary theory, where you're just you're you're running deficits to hand people cash, and the Bank of Canada is basically financing that deficit. Keith, what do you think? What are what are more more importantly, what are the market implications now as well as we? As, as the Bank of Canada says, okay, we're no longer you know, going to do QE, we're going to do this reinvestment phase, but you know, hey, well, hold on a minute. You guys, as, as Rich has just um, you know, explained here, they've basically funded the, the budget deficit, and I don't think the Trudeau government is going to suddenly uh, you know, balance the budget anytime soon. So, I mean, what are, what are you, what's your view here in terms of you know, what, how this plays out for the Canadian, you know, the bond market in general? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think first of all, we all agree that you know balancing the budget is uh, that's for chumps. So no, no one's going to do that. Um, but the other thing that, that's really important to uh, to know is you know just as the Canadians are uh, you know effectively buying their bond market, uh, you know the Americans are doing it. Uh, the European number it, it's above the American number. It could be high sixties at this point. It's higher. It's higher, Keith. It's like in the it's in this high seventies, low eighties. High seventies, yeah. So I, I did the same uh, exercise about a year ago, and and um, and then you look at the Japanese; uh, they're well over one hundred percent. They might be one forty, I think, something like that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, which means they're buying all the new issuance, 
plus they're buying issuance sold by the private sector at, at the same time. Uh, and then if you look inside within Europe, for example, uh, like that's happening within uh, specific members of the Eurozone as well, like Italy, for example. So it's not just Canada doing this. So it's important to know what everyone else is doing because with Canada, if you're just looking at this on its own, you say, man, Canada's a basket case. Like there's no price discovery. Uh, you know, the yield curve is being artificially suppressed. I like to say that word all the time. Uh, but, but it's happening all over the place. And so what this means now coming up next year, where everyone else they're saying, hey, yeah, we're going to NQE, we're going to signal that we want to raise rates. And it's, it's not going to happen, guys, like, especially the, Europe, uh, the Europeans. They will not be raising rates. So we, we can bookmark this, this page and come back a year from now. And we'll I'm, see. Glad I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one because I was getting absolutely roasted on Twitter. <laughs> Um, that, you know, everyone's see five rate hikes coming. And I just says, listen, like, you know, you might want rates to rise. It might be the moral thing to do, but I don't think the system can actually stomach without, so, yeah, without so triggering in off your defense, In your defense, Steve, I just want to say something really quick and then I'll pass it on. But in your defense, Steve, like virtually for the last like 10 years, there's this really famous chart that's always done by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And it looks like, it looks like some kind of sea creature. And you've got the Federal Reserve Fed funds rate that ticks down. And then you've got all these dotted lines that come off of it. Okay. And it's tough to describe. And it's basically, you know, those Fed fund futures, either instruments, whether it's OIS or whether it's the 30 day Fed fund futures that don't skewer me after getting the names wrong. But those instruments basically are always much, much more hawkish than what eventually happens and i would just think it's important that people sort of kind of remember that that, that that's true anyways so let's so we, yeah so let's let's come back next summer and we'll see exactly how many rate cuts uh, these guys are going to be able to do but more importantly from from this bank of canada meeting so they said hey uh you know inflation will go up a little bit more but they think that the rate of growth is going to slow so we're going to move from you know four or five down to two to three that, that's what they're forecasting they're also forecasting growth is going to slow as well so if we get the whole world signaling that they want to raise rates, um, you know, and they're going to reduce QE or just, you know, go in. It's a phone by there's, it's going to be highly unlikely the world can withstand 12 months or nine months of, of these actions taking place or inactions taking place. And we'll be for a year from now, we'll be right back to the point where they're doing QE again. Now we're talking about negative rates. I mean, uh, again, you have to understand. So the ECB, one thing that's outstanding about the ECB, and if you ever listen to any uh, central bank pressers, that's the one to go to. Then that, That's the one. That's the European Central Bank. Uh, correct, the European Central Bank. Uh, I, I didn't watch the one this morning. I was, I was, I was, with, I was doing something else here. But uh, I mean, they're just outstanding. They, they, they talk off the cuff. and But one thing they do, they always... Um, I'll give an example. My, my kids, a few years ago, they were watching this show. It was like The Hunt for Bigfoot or something like that. Do you ever see that? It's a great, <laughs> really great show. But, you know, they're, they're tracking down this big hairy guy and they, they all, at the end of the episode, they almost see him. They're almost, and he just, they, they just lost him. You know, he just gets away. And, you know, of course, you got to come back next week and see it again. That, that's what central banks are like, especially the European Central Bank. They're telling you, yeah, we're going to do this. You know, we feel confident in the economy and everything. You know, they, they, they keep you hanging on and then the next meeting will come and the next one and so forth. But the point is with the Bank of Canada, they will, they're not like the Europeans, you know, they're not as, as wishy-washy with it, uh, but not, they're not as deep in a hole as the Europeans. So they will very likely, they want to raise rates, they will absolutely try to raise rates and they will do it until the market tells them they can't do it. And the one metric for everyone to, to watch, it, it's not equity markets or even the currency world, it, it's credit spreads. So because risk is not allowed to be reflected in, in the world government bond market, look for it to happen in, in the credit space, uh, credit spread world. So it's corporate debt for everyone here who's, who's watching. Uh, that's where it can explode higher. And if that explodes higher, guess what happens with your mortgage rate in Canada? Steve, where's it go? <laughs> it's going up, which means prices going are up, coming baby. down. <laughs> um, but that's kind of, uh, as Keith says, uh, you know, it's, it's these central bankers and their QE programs and zero interest rate policy. It's like the Hotel of California. You know, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Um, so, you know, but it, it, just to transition here, 
because, you know, a whole, a whole part of this, you know, inflation story, Hey, you know, inflation's hot bank of Canada. You have to do your job in 2% inflation target. You must raise interest rates. You know, one of the reluctance to do that has been, well, it's how much of this is due to supply chains, supply chain issues, particularly, you know, in China, which is still running a COVID zero policy. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts here on, on, on China, because I think that from a global macro perspective is playing a huge part and in, in kind of forcing, you know, central banks hands to, Hey, you might have to react here. We don't want to raise rates, but my gosh, inflation is, is ticking higher and higher. And, and a lot of this is due to global supply chains and, and, you know, shipping issues, particularly in China. So. Yes. So, so just two points on, on China, we'll, we'll dive into it. And uh, so first of all, China is incredibly important for Canadians and um, the reason it's important because really they, they, they represent that, you know, that incremental increase in, in consumption around the world uh, on the, like the commodity and, and as well as on the output side. So if, if China runs into problems, it's, it's going to, you know, leak all around the world. So it's, it's incredibly important. Uh, the, the two points with China that, you know, we, we can talk about is one is, you know, what's happening domestically from an economic perspective. And then you have that whole, uh, you know, geopolitical uh, risk that are definitely escalating, uh, involving, you know, the China Chinese and then the Russians and the Americans. And, you know, of course, we had the, uh, the AUKUS or AUKUS, what do you want to pronounce it? Uh, what's, what's the AUK, US? Uh, you know, between the Americans and, and, the, and, and the Brits and then the Aussies, you know, with, with the submarines. But there's a lot of things happening right now with China that Canadians need to be aware of. So what, what are you seeing domestically, Rich, with the Chinese story? Um, I think it's, it's, it's definitely part of that supply chain. I think it's also just it's, it's a function, I think, of what um, the COVID policy. I think we need to sort of admit that in some ways it was like a resounding success. And in some ways it kind of it was the you know past is prologue. I sell that T-shirt on my website, you know, just for fun. But the, the, re the reality is, is, you know, you can't constrain people's ability to go to work in the manner that we did like systematically throughout the world and then give them a bunch of cash in an environment when they can go online and buy stuff. So, you know, those are, so, and then expect, you know, hopefully we'll share this chart. You get a situation where, you know, you can't leave. So all the spending on services, you know, craters, and then takes quite a bit of time to re recover. But the spending on goods explodes, right? Why not? You're at home, got, you know, some time on your iPad, you can't leave the house. What you do, you go on Amazon, you buy stuff. And if you look, whether it's Canada, I know it's to be true. And I know it's true in the US, you know, you've got a situation where those jaws opened, right? You've got services that are in person restricted, but then the spending on goods went up. And the reality is, is that everyone did that at the same time. And, and you basically, and where do we buy, you know, all of our goods from? China, um, you know, and so, and so you have a situation where, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a supply chain, but it's also a function of just like, you know, the store's out of, you know, there's no more lemonade at the lemonade stand, you know what I mean? And, and not only that is like, you have a situation where that, that's, so that part's true, but then also, you know, everyone, I mean, everyone on Twitter has been really excited about this on the way up. And it seems it's funny how it's, you know, crickets on the way down, but the cost of just simply shipping those goods from the largest global exporter in the world, China, to everywhere else has gone up five, six, in some cases, six times, depending on, and how do we calculate it? There's a couple of ways. There's the Shanghai Freight Index, you know, that's up four times. There's the, there's the Harpex um, Freight Index, a similar kind of thing. Then there's something called the Baltic Dry Index, which is an amalgam of the different types and sizes of ships. Uh, that you know something one of the ships is called a panamax because it's the largest ship that you can ship through can you can send through the panama canal and so not only do you have you know uh, uh, you know your your the supply of goods has gone down demand has you know, exploded and then you have the cost of transporting those goods has it has exploded and so that's why you know and then so you and then you see and then so that's why you know if you look at durable goods for example in canada is up six percent year on year um, and you can see, you know, things that have basically the price of goods that have been falling for almost two decades, basically, basically since China joined the WTO, 
you're finally starting to see some increase year on year and over two years. And so it's, 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 you know, I, I, I hate when people try to boil it down to just one thing. I think it's, it's, it's many things, you know, it's the stimulus package. It's the China zero rules. I mean, my friend of mine is in, he just went to China. He teaches in Harbin, which is North of North Korea. Um, and he has to quarantine twice once getting into Shanghai for two weeks. And then once going from Shanghai within China, you have to quarantine from Shanghai to Harbin. And so, you know, you've got the situation where, you know, every su the supply just is refuses to get unlocked, uh, partly because of things, you know, because people are not able to just live their normal lives. Companies are not allowed to normalize. But again, the key, I think the, also the really important thing for me is the demand side where you've had that stimulus just go right to goods because you cannot exploit the services of your neighbors and of the high street. So I don't know how you feel about that, Keith, but I think it's, yeah, it's just never one thing. Yeah, there's normally more than one. <laughs> Let's, uh, so I mean, our view on China. So first of all, you know, we, we didn't talk about Evergrande too much last week, I don't think. Uh, so for everyone who's who's here, um, you know, it's a huge property developer. Uh, they levered up a lot and all of a sudden, you know, they, they're, they're now defaulting on their debt. So in fact, for the US dollar bonds they have, they, they missed the last three payments. So it, it's pretty bad. Um, and then you have other property developers. They're also defaulting. Uh, the equity side, it, it's getting hurt as well. The reason that we look at that, and we're, we're sharing that with everyone here, is that everyone looks at the Chinese economy and they say, hey, it's, it's a miracle. And uh, it, it's not a miracle. So I remember back in, the, back in the 90s, I read this book. I think it was called like The Four tigers or something like that so it was basically about you know the, the the southeast asian countries and they were booming they were going nuts you know of course then they all crashed back in in 97 and you know the, the book talked about the culture you know they all work together in harmony and you know they're young and eager and and all that and like i'm reading this i'm like holy smokes why how come everyone else isn't doing this this is beautiful and then you realize years later no it wasn't that at all it was death it was debt on top of debt on top of debt. So they're borrowing all the time. And that's what's happened with China. So China has been leveraging up their economy now, uh, every, like over the last 20 years, and especially over the last 12 years. And now it's to the point where the only way they can continue to achieve this 6 to 8%, you know, there used to be a 10 or 12% growth here a few years ago, is by continuing to borrow. But what's happening, what Evergrande is showing us is that all of this borrowing, it, it's, it's creating unproductive assets. And an unproductive asset, it's literally that, you know, the, the, the ghost town that you see. The cities are built with no one in them and, and so forth. So the Chinese government, they have to make a choice right now. They have to say, hey, we, we need to start, let's start realizing these losses internally. Uh, it may not creep out directly to hit other markets, but it slows the domestic economy. And it, it reduces their ability to, to grow quickly. So I suspect that the Chinese economy, they're no longer going to be growing at that 5 6% number. It'll be low single digits. And when you have that happening, that affects the rest of the world in the global economy. So that, that's important to consider. Again, the Chinese, they're really struggling now with billions and billions in unproductive assets, which are creating losses. And it's not going to be replaced with more unproductive Eat debt. So I want to jump in there because I think that's like important to note. So, you know, if you get like a slowdown there, obviously that's, you know, a global impact. So that starts to stem the bank of Canada's hawkish forecast for, for rate hikes for one. But number two is, is your, your buddy. Uh, I think we can all agree, you know, probably a pretty, pretty smart guy, Mike green. Um, you know, you can follow him on Twitter, but yeah, you know, I was listening to a podcast with him the other other day, and and he sort of he said something that kind of intrigued me was that you know particularly for myself because I work in the Vancouver real estate market, which is you know benefited tremendously from the, the flows from China, um, particularly over the last five years, is that he feels like they're kind of adapting this policy of um, nobody in, nobody out, um, you know, trying to sort of contained flows and rich i don't know if you can comment on that i know you're tracking the data but and i think it's kind of come down to like this you know mike was talking about this whole covid zero policy which is like hey every time you get a covid flare up you know you shut down the ports that screws everything up and 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 this kind of just 
they're, they're kind of closing up shop here. And, and how's that going to impact, um, you know, we circle back to Canada, but I just look at that for our, for our housing market here anyways, is that, you know, we've seen people always ask me, Oh, you know, Evergrande. And what about the Chinese? Just wait till we reopen the, the borders from COVID. They're going to be coming here and dumping a whole bunch of money. Well, I can tell you from a property market perspective here is that, you know, they're not really buying. Um, you know, if we look at any of the high rise developments, the luxury pre-sale developments that are selling downtown Vancouver at $2,500, $3,000 a square foot, uh, they're not moving. Um, so those flows out of China, at least into our property market are not what they, what they used to be, you know, four or five years ago. So, uh, I mean, I don't know, Rich, if, if I'm missing well, the point I, here, but no, I think there's, there's two, there's two things there. One quickly, I think the idea that China, for example, you know, has a closed capital account. I just think that that's false. I think it's never, it hasn't really ever had a closed capital account. You say, Rich, how can you be so confident about that? China's current account balance is about 340 billion us. That's an annualized number. There's something called, um, I love it. It's my favorite stat probably. It's called net errors and omissions. You say, Rich, why is that important? And normally it isn't. Normally for an economy that you can trust, you can trust their data with, you know, with, with extreme faith, let's say the US, Italy, Japan, you know, G- Germany, and, you know, these developed countries, you know, you have a net errors and omission that is two things. One, it is extremely, extremely small um, at, relative to the total. And relative to GDP, for example, and two, it's mean reverting. So you get, you know, net error emissions just bounces around zero. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. And you say, Rich, why are you dwelling on this? For China, the net errors and omissions is negative 206, I think was the last time I checked, bil- uh, billion US dollars. That's an annualized number. So it's almost 60% of the current account balance. And so I think you're right, Steve. And I think how does that money sort of leave? I think that money leaves with, you know, feet on the ground. And I think that, and I think that, you know, relates to your point about, you know, people aren't bidding up on these things because people were doing it with cash. I mean, Sam Cooper, who's a journalist who I think should get the Pulitzer Prize equivalent in Canada, wrote a whole book on basically the the abject corruption that is um, people in, um, in Canada, basically turning a blind eye, these massive, massive flows. And how did these flows come in? They came in duffel bags. They came with like squeaky bums on planes and and people walking into the BC casino. You're gonna get you're gonna cash. get us kicked off of YouTube. I'm sorry, but you know the, the Sam you know Sam Cooper's respected journalist, and he everything I've under I've read like excerpts from his book, and the, the guy should be lauded for his work. But I think that that's the issue. I think that when you have this this um, this COVID zero policy and you literally can't leave the country, I think it affects those flows. And just and just to push back a little bit on Keith's view of China, I'm much much more like tactically bullish on China. I wrote a note called "Be a Bull in the China Shop" well, a month ago, basically saying, you know, we history. I think doesn't I mean, people say it rhymes? I hate that expression, but I think that there's it's important to just remember a couple of things when you're you know those of us who may or may not be negative on China with respect to different industries. We've seen this before. You know, China's policy is blunt and it leaves scars. In 2010, there was the, they were trying to basically get into, you know, the equivalent of the cops, some kind of climate change uh, meeting. They shuttered all kinds of high energy, high emission industries before the climate talks. In 2012, there was the corruption crackdown. Um, you were not allowed to give watches. There was like, literally um, vineyards in France that went bankrupt because they couldn't sell enough champagne because for years and years and years, all these Fran- all these Chinese bill- um, businessmen would basically gobble up all these uh, bottles of champagne and, and hand it over to, you know, officials corrupt or otherwise. I'm sure they were on the level. Um, you know, you've, you've seen these kinds of, and to me, this the Evergrande blow up was, is not, is a symptom of what we saw a couple of years ago. And, it, you know, with all due respect, I think we've all sort of forgotten it. A couple of years ago, they said, listen, the real estate market's crazy. We need to do something about it. And two years later, I think, you know, right or wrong, again, I think that they have spent a lot of money building unproductive assets, but I think this is, it's, a, it's the Evergrande is a symptom of that policy. And I think it's just another one of those and so there's the idea, you know, people were talking about the Evergrande being the start of Xi Jinping's new cultural revolution. I just, I push back on that view. I think it's just another one of this. It's what these spikes, you know, that's what happens when you have a command economy. You get these, these blunt tools leave scars. Keith? Oh, let's just share a story with you. You know, the world, the world works on stories. So that's, that's what you do. Uh, so I worked offshore for, uh, for some time. And uh, 
I'm at the airport once and uh, bumping this older Canadian guy who he was working construction on the island. He'd go come down for a month and go back again. And, uh, and, and the guy's name is Bill, really nice guy. And I said, Bill, what are you doing? He's, oh, I'm getting ready. And I said, it was we, and he went to the washroom and I went in at the same time. And I said, what are you doing? And he had his shoes off and he was putting cash in his shoes, like a big, a big water cash. I said, Bill, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, so I got about eight grand here. I'm putting them in my shoes and no one's going to know I have it. I can bring it back in. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. And of course, anyone who knows, you can bring in, you know, 10,000 minus $1. You can wear it wrapped around your head and they're not going to say anything. It, it's fine. But the reason that story, it, it's a funny story, I think. And, uh, but it also, you can relate that back into China and then with, you know, the Vancouver real estate story, as well as San Francisco, Toronto, you name it. Capital is trying to get out of China and the, the Chinese Communist Party are doing everything they can to try to slow it. So uh, we all know the Bitcoin story in, in China, you know, the manufacturing, it's like it's mining, I think they call it. It's, uh, it's, it's flattened out. It, it's gone out. It's crashed because they know that was simply a conduit to get U.S. dollars out of the system. Uh, the the E&O number that you're referring to, Rich, I mean, that, that's simply money shooting down to uh, Hong Kong and coming out, you know, through the Hong Kong banking system. So if you're able to get your money out of China, you're getting it out and it has to go somewhere. You know, they're not going to sit on it. So they're buying real estate, you know, like in Canada and, and stuff like that. The risk that we have now that... So if, if, if that capital flow accelerates, you know, for any reason, and there are three events now coming up in China that could affect it. Um, I mean, we all were already increasing now the potential for a conflict over Taiwan. Uh, there's lots of reason to say, hey, that will never happen, or the probability has increased to that happening. Uh, if for some reason it did happen, oh boy, that's, that's going to you're going to see that reflected in financial markets, especially with capital flows. And then uh, on top of that, we also have the, the Hong Kong banking system. Um, they are losing, I can tell you firsthand, they are losing billions of dollars by the week. Again, money leaving the island, they're leaving, they're getting it out. It's going to Singapore, Australia, Everywhere else you can think of, as long as 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 it's getting out of the country. And the other thing with the U, with the uh, Hong Kong based banks, they really are. That's how China gets U.S. dollars. Um, the banks there, if the Americans wanted to, they could shut them off basically from the U.S. dollar system, and and just like that, you know, the Chinese Hong Kong economy would would collapse. So um, you know, Trump was considering that numerous times when he was in office. Every single time the pushback from Mnuchin was, hey, you do that, you're going to crash the stock market. And he didn't want the, the stock market to crash. That's how he measured his approval rating. And um, but you had a lot of these things are taking place. And then, um, you know, so it, I mean, this is all escalating to a point where something will happen. And we've also seen the Chinese. They had what did they test of the day? They had a missile that went around the world. Hypersonic hypersonic space. And do you know how close this thing came to its target when it landed? Very so close. 50 miles. Right in Rich's backyard there. <laughs> that's, that's pretty close. But my point is that um, there's a lot of things happening right now. And of course, we have the Beijing Olympics coming up next year. Uh, the Americans in the West, they have a huge incentive to make everything uncomfortable for the Chinese going into that. Whether it's an outright, outright boycott, who knows? At the same time, you had the Americans and Australians and the Brits, you know, they formed a submarine um, group, the AUKUS, so they're going to put them together. So there, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's geopolitics has shifted from the Middle East over to Asia. And so everyone is lined up, staring at the Chinese, and then they're staring back. And, and the one hole to get through that island chain it is Taiwan. So, um, you know, I, I think the probability of an incident there, is, it is quite low, but it's no longer a zero event. And it just takes one small event, you know, to lead to a crack in the system, which would affect capital flows, including what would happen back here in Canada.
Steve, I want to add something to you, just if I may, just circling back to the inflation thing. I think another thing that we sort of, I, I skipped over, and I think it's really, really important is, you know, for a long time, China was, and is obviously, uh, you know, for a long time, they just manufactured goods and they immediately shipped them. And, and what you're seeing over the last 20 years is they actually are now some of the biggest buyer of goods. And, you know, the, the cost of producing you know, th this is the anecdotal evidence, so forgive me, but look at, you know, the tags on your shirt, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, it was China, and now it's Vietnam and Indonesia and Pakistan. And so, you know, as China's become richer, and make no mistake, it has absolutely become richer, you know, it's become more and more expensive to buy those goods. And it's become now not only a destination for exporting goods from, but importing goods too. And, you know, like one of Apple's biggest markets for the iPhone was China, for example. And I think that what's really important is when you look at, um, you know, for a long time, people would say China's exporting deflation, China's exporting deflation. And I think one of the things that we all sort of have to come to terms with is I think that going forward, I, I think that that story is either ending or beginning to end or has already ended. And the way I would look at that is if you look at durable goods, um, you know, um, semi-manufactured goods, intermediate goods, you could see, or, you know, if you look at information technology or communications, hardware stuff, you could see basically from 1996, which is the peak in that, you know, index to 2019. Again, it's important to stress, there's nothing to do with COVID in my view. And you can see it's actually starting to accelerate. It's because the Chinese are now, it's a much more expensive place to produce those goods. And also there's, you know, there's a middle class there that wants Teslas. They want iPhones and they're now competing with the other middle class. They're now becoming the marginal buyer of all these, of these goods. And I think that that's like an important consideration when you think about inflation, whether it's Tiff Macklin and the Central Bank of Canada, whether it's, you know, the Fed or whatever. And I think it's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that like China, Chinese deflationary impulse is, is sort of come to an end. So these are, yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously all things we have to look at because I think that, you know, people are like, okay, China, you bring it, you bring it all back. And it's like, there's so many moving pieces here that, you know, obviously to try to, to try to forecast rates and the economy, I think a lot of this is going to depend on, on what's happening in China. I think the tension points, uh, as we've sort of highlighted here are, are ramping up. So something we'll, we'll kind of touch on here as we, we can keep an eye on in, in future shows. Um, but I want to wrap this up and, and get to our, our fan mailbag. Looking uh, forward so to this. Speak. Me too. So we've got a, we've got a couple questions, uh, in the Twitter sphere. Uh, we've got one from, uh, at Kyle underscore Lane, Lane, Otarki. Uh, he says, what is your outlook, uh, for the reinvestment phase? Uh, so Keith, I don't know, did you, what, what's your, what's your outlook for the reinvestment phase? Uh, you, yeah, you know. so, so we'll do these uh, sort of quick fires so we don't, uh, you know, I don't want to drone on about QE. Uh, the reinvestment phase, uh, that's going to continue. I, I'd be surprised if they ever got to the quantitative tightening phase. So I don't expect any changes with it. They, they could just target certain parts on maturities with it, but that's, that's what will happen with it. And I'll, just quote, I'll quote Ben Bernanke and just say they're just going to let GD, nominal GDP do the work. So as yeah. a share of your economy, it, it shrinks, but really they didn't do anything. I love it. And then uh, we've got one here from um, Raymond Wong asks, now that the Bank of Canada has ended QE, do you think other central banks uh, will look into ending QE as well? And do you have an opinion on would the Bank of Canada restart the QE program at some point. Yeah, so uh, all, the, all the central banks are talking to each other and that's, that's the, they all wanna move in harmony. Um, so they, you know, everyone will look at doing the same thing as opposed to, I think was it ending QE? Uh, I suspect it will never end. And if anything, <laughs> it'll, it'll increase again uh, at some point. So uh, those, those are my thoughts. Do you, do you think that, uh... You know, I've been following the, the, the Bank of Japan a little bit, right? Like they're kind of like QE on steroids for, you know, almost two decades now. But um, at some point, do you like do, do, at some point do we just reach 
where a point where the central banks own 100% of the government bond market? Yeah, I, I think that's, I think we're going to come into some kind of a debt jubilee at, at some point down the road. Uh, I'm not <laughs> My sure how. exactly. I mean, the ease, so the way that let's use the Japanese as an example. So on, on, you know, it's the weekend, Saturday morning, they make an announcement that they are buying every single government bond that's issued every single one they buy it your your account is then credited with a central bank digital currency you know have that as your pension fund that's not what you have as an asset and as soon as the bank of japan is when that trade settles and then they just forgive the debt the next morning so instantly the debt is gone everyone has this but but it's again it's not as easy as that because the next day all of these pension funds mutual funds whoever's holding those bonds all of a sudden they have this digital currency asset and they had to do something with it, you know? So what are they gonna buy? They're gonna buy equities, real estate, commodities. I mean, who, who knows, but you have to do something with it. But you know, the, the system is, it's just Shiba not sustainable. Inu. It's what? They're gonna buy Shiba Inu, it's that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but this is why but Bitcoin is such a good, good... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, this is why Bitcoin is such a fascinating existential threat to central bankers, right? This is why on some level, I absolutely love it. I, full disclosure, I own a little bit of it, but it's just, you know, it's because it takes, it, it removes the power of money supply and interest rates away from central banks. And just to be clear, as a little mini history lesson, sorry, you do not need a central bank to run a successful economy. If you look at something called the Irish free banking I think era, I think is what it was called. It was in the late 18, late 1700s, early 1800s. You basically had a bunch of private banks in Ireland um, and parts of Scotland just run and each of them had their own currency and each of them had to be, had to work on, on trust. And how do you build trust? You build up your own reserves. You don't make stupid loans. And there was no overarching central bank. That, and it was actually relatively successful. You know, it was a short period of time because, you know, England got involved and screwed things up. But you, you do not ha need to have a central bank to have a successful economy. Anyway, sorry, we'll save some more for that we, later. You're but. definitely getting us kicked off YouTube now. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. Uh, thanks, as always. We will be back for the Looney Hour episode four next week. As always, if you guys have any questions, mailbag, uh, send us a message on Twitter. It's the best way to reach us. Uh, as always, we'll see you next week.